This episode of the Series A podcast is brought to you by the Blockchain Founders Fund. The Blockchain Founders Fund is a global entrepreneurship and investment fund that focuses on adding value to emerging technology and blockchain projects with real-world applications. The Blockchain Founders Fund supports seasoned and first-time entrepreneurs across the key business function with a hands-on intensive go-to-market venture program. Our second sponsor is SGI Partners based in New York City. SGI Partners is a private investment firm that pursues compelling investment opportunities in middle market businesses. SGI has a flexible mandate to invest across the capital structure in control-oriented investments, ranging from strategic financing to buyouts, allowing us to implement innovative investment strategies that preserve invested capital and mitigate risk while driving growth and creating value. As an, inv- as an advisor to SGI partners, I help identify investment targets in my geographical area. Now on to this fantastic new episode. Kamal Gupta was a hedge fund man- manager. He's a professional gambler and author of Play It Right, and he's based in New York. Kamal, welcome to the Series A podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm well, thank you. Are you still a hedge fund manager? I'm not. I left the business in 2019 to work on writing this book. But so, I managed money, money for large hedge funds for 20 years, from 1999 to 2019. Fantastic. We will go over that in a bit. Uh, I would just like uh, your comment on the current state of the markets. Uh, There has been a steep decline in uh, NASDAQ uh, the past uh, week. And uh, it shows today that there is a a small rebound. What do you see? Well, I mean, I think um, there's a fairly straightforward explanation for why the stock market is reacting the way it is. in the last couple of weeks. Because finally, for the first time, the market is coming to grips with the fact that the Fed is actually going to try and fight inflation and interest rates will go higher and long-term interest rates and short-term have all gone from near 1% to near 3%. And all of a sudden, investors have alternatives other than stocks and bonds. When rates are near zero and with fears of rates going negative, people are forced to buy stocks you know, as a way to just park their money. But now that you actually have a credible alternative um, in the bond market of interest rates at 3% or even higher, um, the attractiveness of stocks goes down dramatically. So I had believed for quite a long while that the only thing sustaining stocks at the values they have been for the last year or two was extremely low interest rates. And at any point in time that interest rates were to go higher, the stocks were going to take a beating. And that's exactly what's happened in the last few weeks. Do you see the crypto market at all? Do you have any point of view? I do. Um, I mean, I I know you focus on crypto somewhat, but um, I have paid attention to crypto only in the sense that people have often asked me, what do I think of cryptos? Now, let's for a minute leave stablecoin out of it because those are supposedly pegged to the US dollar, but then maybe not given what happened last night. But my view of crypto, I'm not sure how widely shared this opinion is, but I think the biggest mistake with the crypto market is calling it a cryptocurrency. Like the word currency 
certainly legitimizes the whole whole effort as something other than essentially a stock. Because yeah, you can buy things with crypto. I mean, you can exchange. I mean, uh, crypto for you know objects in some places. I mean, it's actually legal tender. So in that sense, you can call it a currency. But there was a time, you know, a few hundred years ago, where a goat was a currency. Also, you could buy things with with animals. So to me, crypto, and this is something I've believed for quite a while now. And this is not a recent view of mine. Crypto is like stocks. It's like it's buying a volatile asset which goes up and down depending on the state of the financial market, and it's not a coincidence that the crash in crypto in, in the recent few days has been coupled with the crash in Nasdaq, which is obviously very tech heavy. So I have never bought into the idea that crypto is actually a currency. I understand it's a way of transacting, and maybe you can even call it an instrument of barter. But I think by calling it currency, it certainly gave it a certain shine which I'm not sure um, is justified. Now, I have nothing against crypto. By all means, go and, and, and trade them and buy them and sell them. And, and it goes up, it goes down, and people suffer the consequences. But no one would call you know, a stock a currency, even though you can use stocks to buy things. And it's not that difficult. Like rich people often mortgage their stocks, stock holdings, and get loans from banks to buy you know, real estate, houses, even charity, for that matter. So to me, crypto market has always been akin to stocks. And, you know, not that they're perfectly correlated, but they are sort of following the stock market. And uh, with the current valuation, it can also compa be compared to one stock instead of a lot of stocks. Um, that's a tough one because the valuation of crypto, I mean, how you figure it out, I personally don't have a method for that. I had a methodology for the bond market, which is where I worked for a quarter century. I took a year off to work on the stock market and I was able to develop some sort of a methodology around equities as well. Crypto, unfortunately, I don't know how. And to me, a methodology means that you should be able to figure out the fair value for an asset. So everybody knows where crypto is trading or where S&P 500 is trading at any given point in time. But very few people, people can tell you where it should be trading. So to give you an idea, back in 2012, when I was working for a large hedge fund called Millennium, um, I was so convinced the stock market was at least 40% undervalued that I left my job in the bond market and took a year off to analyze stocks um, and to try to come up with some sort of a method. How And it took me a year to go through the financials of the top 300 of the S&P 500 companies and to, decide, to decipher what is the relationship between GDP and PE ratios and interest rates and S&P 500. And you know, to some extent, I was, I was able to make some progress there to the extent that I, was, you know, I had strong views about the stock market at the time. And, the, and that experience taught me that interest rates are a strong component of valuation for the stock market. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now, that low interest rates supported the stock market, high interest rates are crushing it. And uh, to the extent the Fed is committed to, to fight inflation, like it seems like they are, but I mean, I doubt their sincerity, but we'll see, only the next year or so will tell. But at least they're making the right sounds. But despite all the sounds that they're making, interest rates today are still, I mean, overnight interest rates are still below 1% while inflation is 8%. So we're still a very long ways away. Now, yes, rates will go up. 
to three odd percent in the next year or so. And inflation will likely come down. But I have a strong feeling that interest rates, which have been, the real rates have been negative for a very long time. And I think they will continue to be negative because the Federal Reserve desperately cares about the health of the stock market. And so anytime you make real rates positive, I strongly believe the stock market will crash. So while you were at Millennium, uh, you consistently you were consistently profitable despite the market uh, destructions introduced by the Fed. Can you elaborate right. on that? Well, I think it goes back to when I first started on Wall Street. Um, I came to Wall Street as not you know a business school graduate or a graduate from an Ivy League school who wanted to work in finance. I was a bored computer scientist living in San Francisco who turned himself into a blackjack player. And the only reason I played blackjack was it could be demonstrated that the odds are in your favor if you found cards. Like it can be mathematically proven. And just, you know, and chapter one of my book recounts the story how I ended up on Wall Street. But it was purely by chance that I got hired at Lehman Brothers on the basis of my gambling skills. Now, as a result, of, of showing up on Wall Street, not knowing the first thing about finance or the bond market. Um, I dealt with the problem just how I, I dealt with the casinos. I mean, I, I decided that if I'm going to play this game, the odds have to be in my favor. And it took me seven years to figure out a methodology where I had sort of, I slimmed the US mortgage market problem down to a handful of trade constructs whose fair value was knowable. So once you can determine, and that's the same approach I, I, I use in the stock market, you know, several years later, but the whole methodology that I used in the bond market was to figure out, to figure out which constructs can you trade whose fair value you can actually know with some degree of certainty. And so, that, so once you have a high degree of confidence that you know what the fair value of an asset is, um, then you can deploy a very different discipline trading strategy um, to, you know, buy in small increments as it goes further and further against you. And, and the further away from fair value you are, the greater the profit potential and greater the probability of success. And, um, and the closer to fair value you, you come back to, I mean, both of those things fall. So at, the further you go from fair value, which means your position is losing money, you deploy more and more capital, which is the exact opposite of what a momentum investor would do. And the, the, if the trade turns around and gets closer to fair value, you'll take it all off because the profit potential and the probability of success has have both gone down, even though when the trade starts moving in your favor is when all the momentum investors will jump on it. And I think especially in crypto and, and NASDAQ over the last few years, you've seen a lot of momentum investors um, jumping into the asset class. So since So my whole methodology was based on figuring out fair value. And once, and to make sure that I only traded those instruments whose fair value was knowable. And um, so I found a niche in the US mortgage market where, and which is where I stayed from 99. It took me seven years to figure out the niche and how to trade it. And then for the next 20 years, working with some of the largest hedge funds in the world, um, I just did that. Whether I was working for the largest Swiss bank uh, to the largest European, um, hedge fund for a while, Brevin Howard, and then eventually Millennium. I followed for 20 years. I never deviated from my methodology, even a single day. 
what was your strategy on uh, managing risk? It was very similar to how I managed risk in the in, in casinos. Um, there is a, a rule that you can follow. I believe it's called the Kelly Criterion in, in, uh, in Blackjack, where given the size of your bankroll, you dis determine what the size of your bets are going to be such that you have a 95% probability of doubling your bankroll and only a 5% probability of losing it all. So, I mean, if you keep playing the game, one of two things will happen. Either you lose everything or you'll double what you have. I mean, eventually one of the two things will happen as, uh, as long as you keep playing the game. So I, I was comfortable with the 95-5 ratio where there's a 95% chance I double my, ba my, my bankroll and only a 5% chance that I lose it all. And, and I never did lose it all because 5% is a fairly low probability. Uh, but that means that your bets have to be small versus your bankroll, um, which lowers your ROE and profit potential, but it's still high enough for me. I followed the exact same script on in terms of risk management on Wall Street, which has infuriated my bosses because, you know, hedge funds want to make as much money as possible, as quickly as possible. So they want you to take a lot of risk. Whereas my strategy was based on having a near zero probability of losing everything or ruin, so to speak, which meant my sizes were always very low versus my bankroll and bankroll on Wall Street is defined by your risk limits or the capital you're managing. Now, while on one hand, that has, the re sorry about that. Um, um, but on one hand, what's that's his a name? dog. What's his, name? His, name is, his name is Finn. Finn, is he hungry? He's, well, he's he in a different room. Should I go and move him out and then come back or? No, it's okay, it's okay. Is this sound okay? Uh, I this is not Bob. Okay. What? Um, well, so let me is, go back to. I wanted well, to ask an answer. Have, okay, okay, I have ahead. like a, a question. So yeah. you are describing a risk to reward kind of. Uh, exactly. Uh, scheme, so, but uh, of course, in blackjack, is that uh, in uh, the span of uh, the um, uh, like. Uh, one uh, hand or how you call it uh, versus in trading this can be applied in each uh, trade uh, so how exactly do you translate the methodology from blackjack to to trading this was not it's, it's believe it or not it's exactly the same because blackjack is the long-term game is a series of hands right it's like a whole bunch of hands you play like 50 to 75 hands per hour. And so you, during the course of a day, you might play several hundred hands and so on. In trading, you do several trades a day sometimes, you know? And so during the course of a year, you have hundreds and hundreds of trades. So if the odds are in your favor, you will come out ahead. Just like if the odds are in your favor in blackjack, in the long run, you'll come out ahead. What happens on any one hand is not important. What happens is what happens in the long run. And the same, so having 5% uh, risk on, on uh, hedge fund trading is considered low by your uh, then... It's not 5% risk. It's 5% chance of losing everything. And then that 5% that chance of losing everything was something I used in blackjack. In hedge fund world, I think I've used an even lower chance of losing everything. I mean, I think maybe 1% or even lower. Like I... I have made sure that I never had enough risk that would blow me up because I've seen 
plenty of hedge funds blow up right in front of my eyes because they took too much risk. Now, the thing, if you take, why do people take a lot of risk? Because they want to get paid a lot of money. And taking less risk has lowered my pay, but has given me something far more valuable in return, which is peace of mind. So you saw colleagues of yours blowing the entire account. Uh, is yeah. that in the span of a trading session or in a month or? No, no, it takes a few years sometimes. It doesn't take, it, it doesn't take a session or a, or a month even. It might take even a few years. Like in 2004, um, I was working for a Swiss bank where I realized that they were going to blow up on CDOs and subprime. And they didn't blow up until three years later. But by, by then I had long left the firm because I knew it was the Titanic and it was going to sink. So I had no interest in being around. But in 2004, no one had heard of CDOs and subprime and no one even thought they would take the whole global economy down. But I had seen enough firsthand to know this was going to be a problem. But at the time I thought the problem was confined to one bank, not to the entire financial system. Okay. Um... Let's, uh, let me ask you, how did the computer science degree uh, help you in the finance world? I'm not sure it did. I think the computer science degree, um, it helped me. Should I go take care of the dog first? Like, sure, I mean, this sure. is like really disturbing. Okay, so the dog is outside so, now. It's not outside, but we'll see. You know, he's still there. Okay. So uh, where were we left? Yeah, the computer We were talking science. about how the computer science degree. Uh, yeah. I think uh, my undergraduate degree in India was in electrical engineering and I came to the US to pursue computer science. So the electrical engineering helped me come to America. Computer science helped me move to San Francisco and work in, for Oracle in the Bay Area. And that's how I found Blackjack on a ski trip to Lake Tahoe. So, and so my you, boss you were playing uh, blackjack back then. Uh, there was no uh, online games. Were you playing? No, no. This is this is this, this is pre-internet. This is the early nineties. Okay, so you were you were counting cards in the casinos. Yes, getting thrown out, you know, over Did and over get, again. Uh, what, was that a bad thing? Did you get caught? Yes, I mean, I got thrown out of casinos. I think four times. Okay, did they punch you in the face like in the Kevin Spacey movie? Right, they did not punch me in the face. Although the guy whose book, I, whose rules I followed, Ken Houston, Million Dollar Blackjack, he was arrested and beaten, you know, but that didn't happen to me, you know. Uh, how long did it take you to learn uh, this method? I did this for, from start to finish for like two and a half years or so, but it took me about a year before I was winning consistently. Okay. It takes a long time. To, yeah. So yeah. this is like a question I always had. If you do this on an online game where you have nobody monitoring you, is it still illegal to do it? I don't know. I haven't tried. Um, I, I think online people play poker. I don't know if too many online blackjack games. And by the way, there's nothing illegal about card counting. Casinos don't like it because they lose money. They throw you out. It's not illegal. It's just, you know, um, they hate it because they want to make sure they make money from every single. Um, so it's just against yeah. the rules. It's against their rule, which is they want to make sure they make money from every gambler. Uh, do you still play blackjack? With I haven't played in a long time. No, I mean, I think I used to get my fix in the bond market. And then for the last three, four years, I've been focused on writing this book. So uh, 
I have not been playing. I mean, for a while I was interested in poker, but then I, I was 50 some years old. So I lost interest in, I mean, I, I realized I was too old to play the game. How about uh, trading the market? Are you still doing that? You know, it's funny. Like I, I've been obsessed with one thing after the other in my life. In the last few years, I've been obsessed with writing a book. That's been my focus. So I have not really paid attention to markets that much, except for like whenever someone asks me for advice, I look at it. Um, to me, a 3% yield on a U.S. Treasury is very generous. And I believe in, I mean, I put all my assets into that. And I own no stocks and I haven't owned any stocks for a while right now, or crypto for that matter. Because I believe if you can get a, a 3% re- return for 5, 7, 10 years without any risk. Um, and by the way, that is the, the defining characteristic of, of a U.S. Treasury. You, and this is a little, no, people don't realize this. As long as you're unlevered and you don't borrow money, you cannot lose money in a U.S. Treasury. So uh, staying a little bit on the gambling uh, side of your background, uh, did you consider it to be gambling or since you had the system, it was more like, you said, like a profession instead of gambling? That's actually a very good point because the activity is called gambling. But gambling means taking a chance on things. If the odds are in your favor, like they were when I was counting cards, or when I was managing money, then you're not gambling, you're investing. So as long as you have a small advantage in the markets or in the casinos, in the long run, you'll earn a fairly healthy return on investment. Because a small edge can be translated into a high ROE. A 1% advantage in blackjack can become like a few hundred percent return annualized. Uh, And a quarter or a half percent return in, in the bond market can give you 15, 20% returns on an annual basis, and which is what I had achieved. So you just need a small edge, but you need that edge to be mathematically provable and quantifiable. What does compounding mean to you? Compounding to me means not paying taxes. I mean, you know, that you're... Uh, you own an asset, I mean, let's say it's whatever, the 5% return. And then, you know, if you own it, if you earn 5% compounded for, I think, 13 or 14 years, you'll double your money, something like that. And if you pay taxes at the end of that, you know, it's smaller liability than if you pay taxes every year. Uh, And then suddenly you're compounding it to 2.5%, which is a much, much lower rate. So to me, compounding means you earn money on top of more of your past earnings without paying any taxes. So let's uh, take that to the hedge fund world. Uh, and let me repeat the question. What does compounding mean when you have a billion worth or uh, eight billion, was it that you were managing? No, no, no. That was... Actually, let me just take care of this dog one more time. Can we pause for a second? This is the final time. Okay. I'm just It's really bothering me anymore. So let me repeat the question. Uh, what was the largest amount of uh, uh, portfolio money you were managing? And uh, well, what does compounding on that amount mean for you? Well, I think compounding for any hedge fund i mean there's this concept of carried interest as well where you know you just carry gains forward without paying taxes on them and in terms of capital what i was managing 
managing, you know, wherever I worked was a few hundred million dollars in capital. But that translates into oftentimes a few billion in assets because um, there is this concept of leverage that hedge funds employ. And since I traded very low risk mortgages, uh, a multiplier of 10 or more was not, was actually quite a low number. So if you're managing a few hundred million in equity, in capital, that easily translated into a few billion dollars worth of holdings. Mm -hmm. So, um, and compounding, you know, uh, while working at, I mean, even though I worked at a hedge fund for two decades, I never, I didn't have to worry about how exactly they accounted for it. It was, there was like a whole operation behind at Brevin or at Millennium that took care of all this stuff. My job at a hedge fund was simply to show up every morning, look at the market and figure out what constructs offered me the best odds and just put those trades on, uh, hedge out all the risks that I saw that would affect the trade and then hope for the best and do that over and over again for 20 years. So at Exodus Point, which is a hedge fund, you helped uh, raise 8 billion USD. Yes. Uh, that, and that was the, the largest hedge fund launch in history. It was. Why don't you tell us about it? So the person who brought me into this business back in 1993, also, I mean, he, he also brought me to Millennium and he also was the founder of uh, Exodus Point. So, so in fall of 2017, he asked me to join the firm, even though the firm hadn't even been started yet. And they had a handful of employees, I would say like less than 10. There was no office space. I mean, I don't think the firm even had a name at that point. But anyway, I left Millennium in early 2018 and joined Exodus Point. Um, and at the time, now they had office space, but again, very few employees. And the first task for any startup hedge fund is to raise capital because you can't conduct business without. And I think initially we thought if you could raise a couple of billion, that would be great to start up. I mean, that's fantastic for a brand new venture. Um, and they asked me to help in raising money, which sort of was surprising for me because I, even though I'd worked for hedge funds for 20 years, um, I had no experience in marketing. I'd never done it before. So they asked me to meet a few investors. And so I said, sure, because at the time I might have been the only portfolio manager who was around and, and investors wanted to meet an example portfolio manager. So I think initially they defaulted to me, but then when the meetings went really well, they realized that, you know, I could be of some use in this, in this process. So the way I dealt with it is even though I had never done this before is that I decided to go in into these hour long meetings started by, you know, collectively these investors manage trillions of dollars. And I decided I would just tell them my story like my life story about growing up in India, becoming an electrical engineer, hating electrical engineering, coming to the US, becoming a computer scientist, hating computer science, becoming a professional gambler, ending up on Wall Street, finding a method, trading in my track long-term track record and all that. And investors were fascinated by it. And you know, I had some skill as a storyteller because if you think about marketing, marketing is nothing except telling a good story. I mean, what is a marketing campaign? It's telling a story about your product. And the product in this case is the brand new hedge fund that has been launched. 
And so I told them a story about, you know, the hedge fund, about myself, about my background, about my methodology, about my track record. And they were transfixed. And one of the largest investors in the world said that I was the most interesting portfolio manager they'd ever met. And the meetings went so well that the head of marketing for Exodus Point started calling, gave me a nickname, The Closer. And he started scheduling me as the last meeting of the day. You know, uh, before the final, before the the men and the investors went out to make a final decision about the investment. So this this have happened ten or fifteen times with some very large investors. And after three months, um, you know, the excess point instead of trying to raise money, found itself in a situation where it was turning money away. And they could have raised well over ten billion dollars. And finally, the cap rate didn't change. And that's how that came about. Is this the story you are uh, telling in your book? No, this is the, the ending of the book. We've given the ending away. The story in the book is about how I struggled against the odds, first in the casinos, then on Wall Street, and then it goes back into like early life as well. So it's my journey from basically starting from blackjack ending up with the launch of Exodus Point in between, you know, earning one of the finest track records, you know, in hedge fund history, earned by an individual. And then with my backstory thrown in. So Exodus Point is just the ending. You know, it's basically the epilogue of the book. Um, it's the exclamation point on which the book ends. So did you stick to the five uh, and the 95% uh, analogy throughout your uh, uh, I think if, yes I mean I think even even probably even less than five percent because to me uh, unlike most people it was not making the most amount of money that I was after to me the satisfaction in playing the game is playing it well and beating the markets or the casinos over and over the exact amount of money I make is not as important as being able to play the game for a long time to come because I love playing the game. And how do I ensure that I can keep playing it over and over and over, year after year, you know, decade after decade? Um, so did you ever uh, strike out by uh, staying on the 5% of the equation? I never even came close to striking out in the financial world, not, and which is something which made my bosses angry because they wished, like one of the, the most common refrains that I heard throughout my Wall Street career was take more risk. And I just wouldn't do it. Uh, did you ever think to start your own hedge fund? I did. I very seriously thought about it in 2009. Um, in 2009, um, I left Brevin Howard and I was considering a lot of options, including early retirement to, um, starting my own hedge fund before finally ending up at um, Millennium. Um, I, I met a lot of investors um, in spring of 2009. Um, and one or two of them were actually willing to give me money to start my own hedge fund. And then I realized by doing this, I'm overcomplicating my life because I don't really want to manage a company. I just want to manage money. And I can do it more efficiently at a work, at an established hedge fund. So 
after looking at what was involved in actually setting up and running a company, I decided that my heart was not in that. I just wanted to manage money and play the game over and over again. And I would get distracted with all the minutia of the back office and hiring and HR. And, and I just didn't want to do it. Um, so I went to Millennium and just played the game for another seven or eight, nine years before going to Exodus Point. And before, and it was my meetings at Exodus Point that gave me the idea. I mean, it gave me conviction to write this book because when I saw the effect my life story had on these potential investors, because these are all strangers, I've never met them before. I said, you know, maybe I should really write this book, which sort of tells the same story that I told them. And that's what is contained in Play It Right. Are you still uh, managing mortgage assets or are you no. diversified? No, I'm not managing any mortgage assets because I, right now, um, I invest everything I have in US treasuries. I mean, a yield of around 3% is very generous, I believe. Do other hedge fund managers ask you about your methodology? Yeah, many have. I mean, and actually there are stories in the book about how people tried to pry the strategy out of me and how I, I beat them off, you know, sometimes by just telling them flat out no, or sometimes by just steering them in the wrong direction. So if you read the book, you'll find stories about how people were after me for the methodology. And I just wouldn't share it because it's like, it's like going to your favorite restaurant I mean, would would you ask the chef uh, to give him the recipe to your favorite dish? I mean, nobody would dare, right, to ask the chef. You know, so in the hedge fund world, methodology is a secret sauce that keeps every hedge fund in business. So no one is, in my opinion, allowed to ask anyone else. I mean, you can ask, but you have no right to receive. Um, no one has any right to anyone else's methodology, especially because in my case, I figured it all out myself over a seven year period. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, are, are you also a cook? I am actually, I love cooking. And it's one of the things, brief stories in the book is about how I, for a while I'd fantasized about um, starting my own restaurant. And that was another thing that I gave up after work. I mean, I worked at a, as a waiter in a, in a restaurant, in a vegetarian Middle Eastern restaurant in Minneapolis for, for a while. And I saw up close and personal how grueling running a restaurant is. And it sort of reminds me many years later, almost a couple of decades later about starting my own hedge fund. I mean, it's the same thing. It's a grueling business. Um, and I didn't realize that I didn't have the heart, I mean, forgive the pun, but the stomach for running a restaurant. So, um, so I abandoned that fantasy, but I, I still love cooking. I, um, I mean, what, I cook a great what's, deal. What's your favorite dish? Well, I'm a vegetarian. So, and my wife is an Italian American. So we cook a lot of Indian food and a lot of Italian food at home, ranging from arrabbiata to broccoli rabe to dosas to all sorts of North Indian and South Indian food. Okay, um, so so the book is out now. It's uh, it is. May of 2022. Of course, I will include the Amazon link uh, on the show notes. Um, What's next for you, Kamal? Well, the first thing that I have to do next is that the book just came out in North America and the UK uh, earlier this week. But it's not released in India until June 18th. 
And there's a different publisher. Uh, it's called Bloomsbury for India. So right now I'm working on finishing, putting the finishing touches on the Indian edition. And there will be some marketing involved and stuff like that, which will probably take up the next couple of months. So and, you are uh, doing both editions yourself? No translator? No, no, they're both English editions. Even the Indian, Indian edition is still English. It's just that it's slightly different from the North American version because spellings are different, protocols are different. You know, the way they use certain words is different. So it's 95 to 99% the same book, but there's, there are a few changes that make it slightly different, but still in English because India has a very large English speaking population. Um, so it's still an English book and it's probably 99% the same book as the one that's being released in America, but it's the same title, but it has a different subtitle. Like the subtitle in India is not the remarkable story of the gambler who beat the odds on Wall Street. It's simply the man who beat the odds on Wall Street. And they are going to use a different marketing spin than was used in North America, which is fine. I mean, because the audience in India and North America have a different, you know, bent. So different things appeal to them. So right now I'm working on that. And then after that, uh, my plan is to work on a book, on a, on a second book, which I'm about halfway through at the moment. Uh, who is the target audience? For the, uh, for this book? I think the, the target audience for Play It Right, for me, and hopefully it gets there, is anyone who loves a good story. It's a, it's a, it's an, it's, I mean, even though I lived it, it's hard for me to believe all of this really happened. And, you know, you'll read, you'll read the book. There's a lot of incredible events that take place, which, you know, I won't give them away here. But uh, the person who edited the book, you know, uh, when it was, go before it was published, she said that when she read the first draft, she said, it seems like you've lived multiple lifetimes. That's how she defined it. She said, like, every time I thought I'd seen it all, something more incredible and horrifying happens, you know. And, um, And you'll just have to read it to see it for yourself, but it's a fast moving story. It's very funny in parts. Um, I think if you read that book, you'll learn something about gambling. You learn a lot about Wall Street and hopefully you'll learn something about life. I mean, how, because I've had a lot of struggles in my life and you'll, you'll, you'll and the book goes through all of those. Okay. But eventually it all works out. Kamal, uh, thank you for coming to the podcast. We look forward to reading your book. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you.